thank you very much, Charlotte. Thanks for the invitation to join you, and thanks for CPP for for setting this up. And uh, it's great to have uh, Mayor Andy Burnham with us, and to have this regional perspective, which is so important. Uh, let me briefly go through some of the work we've been doing at Resolution, and end with a couple of the really tricky trade-offs in all this. So let's start with a the young people who who are losing out the most, the needs, the young people who are not in education, employment and training. And there there is a very clear regional gap uh, across England. We're talking an average of about 11 percent. Uh, the latest figures and these go back to late 2019. But in, for NEETS in the northwest, we're talking of a rate amongst 16 to 24 year olds of 14.4 percent who are NEET compared with at the other end of the scale, 8.2% who are neat in the Southeast. So that long-standing British problem, young people who are neither in education nor in work, uh, remains with us. And it looks to be tougher in the Northwest and even worse, actually the worst place is the Northeast. And what can we do about it? For 16 and 17 year olds, there is a clear requirement that they should be in education, training or work. The trouble is actually implementing it. That is a responsibility that is not effectively discharged. If uh, a 17 year old is simply staying at home, lying in bed, there is very little that any agency is currently doing to track him or her down and try to get them something useful to do. And there are also capacity constraints. Not every one of them currently has an an offer, an available place. And this is where FE is so important. And uh, we do need to invest more in FE. Um, then if we move on for the 18 plus, there is of course, increasing focus on uh, offering them uh, a uh, access to level three or indeed remedial level two courses. I think FE has a real challenge here. It's both a place we look to, to help people catch up. It's also got a network of six form colleges as part of FE, and it's also delivering education, adult education and training, but that's really important. Now, what kind of employment might these young people find and what kind of training is relevant? And here at Resolution, we've got some really frustrating evidence of how the labour market is not working and labour market intelligence is certainly not getting through. So it's pretty clear when we look at the virus that there are some sectors like retail, which is very hard to see jobs recovering in retail. However, more than 40% of job applications for young people are for jobs in the retail sector where they just aren't any. Um, there are some areas, sectors which have been badly hit, which you might affect about, hope to bounce back, like hospitality. By far the biggest number of vacancies is in social care. That's where the gap is. However, young people are not applying in large numbers for jobs in social care. They are half as likely to apply for a job in social care as in retail, when actually social care has twice as many vacancies as retail. So there's one blindingly obvious and frustrating thing, which is if every youngster who thinks they're going to get a job in retail were instead to think, could I perhaps get some basic retraining and think of a job in social care, they would at least get started on the housing ladder somewhere. Um, and then, of course, coming down the track, uh, as well as social care, there are the green jobs of the future. And perhaps in the course of our discussions, we'll just talk about how we turn those from a theory into a reality. 
you do need practical skills and training to deliver the uh, green jobs. As a former MP uh, like Andy, I can still remember how the housing problems that were most serious in my former constituency was a terrace of social housing called Kyoto Terrace that had been built by the local housing association as an example of green housing and the solar panels didn't work because they hadn't been properly fitted and I had more housing complaints from the occupants of Kyoto Terrace than I think from any other street in my former constituency and the lesson I learned from that is it's no good having grand ambitions if you don't train up people in practical skills like fitting solar panels and fitting uh, green boilers and linking them all up. Finally just a couple of really tricky trade-offs they're not where I think reasonable people may differ. And I just wanted to bring attention to them because they may be themes through our discussion. First, how useful is education and training in getting people into work? And there are different views on this. Uh, what I used to believe, which I think is still widely believed in the treasury, is that training may be a good thing for boosting productivity and boosting long-term career prospects, but it's not necessarily the best way of helping unemployed people into jobs. The most important thing for them is just to have some job, any job, after which they train up and skill up and develop their careers. Indeed, there was some American evidence. If you took unemployed people, the ones who are offered free training did less well at getting jobs than the ones who weren't offered training, because the ones who were offered training, their reserve wage, their idea of what they could do became more ambitious and narrowed down their search and they were less likely. The alternative view, which I think easy to come around to, is yes, we do need more education and training. There's a real problem here. And looking back, we may regret that we did not offer young people so many education and training opportunities in this recession. But it's a reasonable debate. And if you look at the design of Kickstart, Kickstart is clearly designed around a view that training isn't what matters, keeping them in touch with work in some practical way, just so that they don't become totally demotivated is the focus of the programme. So far, sadly, to kickstart has not delivered much. And then the other trade-off is the role of price signals in signalling where the jobs are. And one of the things that's happened in England in the last 10 or 20 years is areas where pay is high, signalling here that there are, that there are job, high paid jobs and they're looking to recruit, are also increasing the areas where rents, private rents are high. So a young person in a tough area with a low income and low pay now would barely see any improvement in his or her living standards by moving to an area of high skills, high pay, because the landlords would capture most of the gain in higher rents. And this is one of the reasons why when you look at what's happened to the British labour market, mobility is declining. Social mobility is declining. Geographical mobility is declining. And one reason I'm sure is the signal of what you gain by moving to a different area with higher pay is much weaker than it was. So there we are, just setting the scene. Fantastic. Thank you, David. Um, for your work on intergenerational um, inequality, I think it's clear when we're talking just before the discussion that the, the challenges of that are going to get more and more profound, I fear. Um, but uh, on that happy, cheerful segue, I shall go to David Goodhart for his thoughts and reflections before we um, then go into a bit more discussion on some of those meaty themes. David. Great, thanks. Um, uh, Charlotte, you mentioned that 
book I've just written, Head, Hand, Heart, the thesis is kind of in the title. I argue that we've been allocating too much reward and prestige to just one cluster of human aptitudes, those connected with, with cognitive ability, the manipulation of information and data, and relatively neglected um, the other clusters of aptitudes relating to manual, technical, craft, skills, emotional intelligence, caring jobs, and so on. Um, and I think actually, if you look at uh, if you look at what's happened to post school education and training in the last twenty or thirty years, it's rather a good example of my thesis that we have since the nineteen nineties. We've kind of put all most of our eggs, at least, into the basket of expanding higher education. Um, that wasn't necessarily a, a foolish thing to do. Uh, particularly if you if you go back to the kind of seventies, eighties, nineties, we were there was a huge increase in the demand for professional cognitive jobs, whether it was in the expanded welfare state or the the knowledge economy. Um, but I think we've now reached what I call kind of peak head. Um, that that expansion of higher education, um, which also did I think have some negative sort of social and cultural consequences. It meant you had to leave to achieve because of our system of mainly residential higher education. Uh, schools became almost entirely focused on sending as many kids as possible to university, if possible Russell Group universities. Um, so a lot of the brightest kids, you know, brightest kind of 18 year olds from lots of, you know, from working class towns, the Mansfields and the Rotherhams, got sucked into, uh, into the higher education sector, which was a, obviously a good thing in many ways. They tended to leave, they went to the metropolitan areas and kind of fed the agglomeration theory. Um, um, but that you know, increased the gulf. You know, we were wringing our hands about regional inequality on the one hand, while on the other hand, encouraging it through the system of post-school education. Um, and, um, yeah, it, 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 it exacerbated regional inequality, it created left behind resentment, um, and of course it hasn't even increased um, productivity. Um, um, like I say, we've now reached what I call peak head. Um, it's clear that the assumption of an ever-growing proportion of cognitive professional jobs um, is no longer the case. Um, I mean, some, aren't, some, some of these jobs are still needed, clearly, in, in, in many areas. Uh, but relatively speaking, the pace of increase has has slowed down. Um, and meanwhile, as David Willits was just saying, we have these huge shortages in other areas. We have a recruitment crisis in in social care and in nursing, uh, and we have the the crisis of the missing middle, the kind of technician, the technician level um, uh, skills that um, that you know a generation or two ago, the people who are now going to university would have would have filled those jobs uh, and we now we now have a crisis because nobody uh, wants to do the kind of you know the, the maintenance jobs you know we've got a huge amount of kit in, in a modern society and, and it needs maintaining otherwise it falls apart um, so um, and I think but I, I mean I think that the kind of good side of the story is that I think there is a, a recognition in government um, that the, the, we've kind of reached the limits of the, the of the to caricature slightly send everybody to to HE strategy, uh, and there is a recognition, both in terms of uh, of the kind of individual life experience, but also in terms of what the economy needs that we need to readjust, uh, and, and we need to fill the the so-called level four five gap, 
And I think we do now have the building blocks in place, actually. Um, you know, if you look back at these, um, at these milestones, um, uh, you know, all these different reviews we've had, going back to say the Sainsbury review on the missing middle, which drew attention to the missing sort of technician class, uh, level four, five. We then had the auger review a couple of years ago on kind of the readjustment between HE and FE, you know, the extraordinary numbers that the that, that auger dug up. I mean, I think it's something like, um, you know, we spend every year about uh, 8 billion pounds on 1.2 million uh, university students, and we spend 2.3 billion pounds by contrast on 2.2 million people 18 plus uh, in, in FE. Uh, so that you know, it drew attention to that imbalance. Um, but we've also got, we've now got the latest skills white paper, which kind of builds, I think, on both of those pieces of work. Um, and, um, and, and the stress on beefing up the, uh, the kind of Cinderella um, sector, the FE sector. Um, I mean, like some of the details have yet to be worked out, but I think it's, broad, it's broadly moving in the right direction. There's also, um, I think, um, not before time, um, a levelling up, as it were, of the, of the loan promise. I mean, the, the kind of three, four-year loan guarantee has only been, or has main, mainly been something that undergraduates have enjoyed. Now um, that is going to be available to, to everybody doing non-undergraduate courses too, although for some reason in the, in the white paper it says this won't, be, um, this won't be enacted until 2025, which does seem rather a long time to, to do something which I would have thought is relatively straightforward, um, but perhaps I get there consulting on the details of it. Um, um, so, um, and we've, we've got T-levels, I mean, I, uh, and we've had the apprenticeship levy now, and uh, there's a lot of criticism of both of these things. Um, but um, you know the T level system is already underway. Um, and, you know, as Alison Wolf is always saying, the crucial thing is that you know that some of the some of the most able kids, some of the brightest kids, start to to do T levels. So it's not just seen as a, a, a as a residual. So um, I think we we have you know we are in the process of sort of you know shifting the tanker, as it were. Um, um, uh, but but I mean it's something I would like to just point out briefly before uh, I finish I mean the the whole the whole we're also kind of here talking about leveling up obviously I mean COVID has has cast a shadow over many of these things we don't quite know how how COVID is going to affect the economy um, but I think it is I think it's important to remember that leveling up is not just about the north and the Midlands I mean we kind of need leveling up pretty well everywhere outside perhaps mm -hmm. central London um, and I think it's worth if Andy Burnham is here <laughs> uh, I think it is worth pointing out that um, people often don't practice what they preach on levelling up. So Manchester, for example, I mean, the, the combined authority has some discretionary funding. Um, and if you can look at the way that it's been spending its money, it's been spending it mainly in central Manchester, you know, kind of sexy investments in, in, in digital startups and um, it's given Manchester Metropolitan University 15 million pounds to start a screen school. Now, all, all of those are kind of good things, but these kind of, you know, these reflect the kind of assumptions behind, behind Manchester politics. Meanwhile, the, the FE colleges, you know, in Bury, you know, in, um, in Wigan, um, in Rochdale, have not been receiving anything like the same, um, the, the same levels of funding. So I think... Um, I think there's a, a, a little bit of, you know, if we're worried about levelling up, levelling up 
could actually be happening rather more effectively within Greater Manchester itself. Well, well, Andy, if I could bring you in at this stage to to reply to some of those things and other points that you've heard. Yes, thank you, uh, Charlotte. Afternoon, everybody. It's nice to follow uh, the two Davids, uh, one a uh, former parliamentary friend and colleague, uh, another former teammate, actually, in the most famous political football team. I think we'll, we'll leave, that uh, leave that story for another day, I think, the demonise uh, team of many years ago. Um, but no, good um, to follow both and some good points that I agree with and some provocation at the end, which I'll, I'll respond to. But um, you know, I agree with the vast majority of what's, what's been said. I think the first point you've got to start with is, I'm afraid the pandemic has set us back and it's, it's, uh, uh, it's leveled down life chances uh, for a lot of young, young people. It's severely disrupted their lives um, and the impact is greater, I think, uh, the less... Um, uh, affluence within the family uh, environment, I think it's, uh, it's fair, fair to say. There is an immediate issue, I think, before you know, we get into the sort of longer term uh, structural issues, and that is kind of a rerun, I think, of what we saw last year with the uh, algorithm and the A-level debacle, where there was a real risk, actually, of um, a levelling down effect where students who went to larger institutions which tend to be in the more urban suburban areas would have been um, would have been disadvantaged. Um, the, the the risk this year, uh, as I understand what Ofqual is proposing with regard to the um, assessment, is that they're going to assess where young people are at in the summer of 2021. Now that does not take into account um, the fact that kids in some of the poorest parts of the country, and that can be in the south as well. David, I absolutely agree with you. Midlands North as well have spent more time out of the classroom because of the higher case rate in those communities. Uh, and it's a very risky thing if we're going to assess on where kids are at rather than where they would have been had they had a non-disrupted uh, education. And I think it's a really important point. Otherwise, there is a disadvantage about to be baked in for life here and uh, that, that point needs to be made. But Charlotte, I'll turn to the, the bigger issues. I mean, just to talk about the reality of kind of education for a lot of young people in this country. I agree very much with David that the message at school, secondary school in many places, is an academic, university-oriented uh, message. I would say the English baccalaureate has skewed the uh, curriculum and the school experience in that direction. It, it subtly sends out messages to young people who are not on the university route that they are not as valuable, and I think that has a, an effect on uh, aspirations. Um, and then, therefore, they, they will be thinking about um, opportunities within uh, uh, FE and, and skills. Here's a point that needs to come into this conversation at, at the beginning. Finance is critical here. There used to be something called the Education Maintenance Allowance, um, which was scrapped in the early days of the coalition. Now, I wouldn't say it was perfect, but it did something really important, which is it supported people to have ambitions about their education, i.e., the ability to travel further afield to find the college uh, or school of their of their choice. I think the effect of losing that now is that young people often are trapped within their their borough where they live, uh, and um, people talk about a ten minute world where they don't really go much beyond a you know a, a, a radius of not not that far from where they where they actually actually live. Uh, the lack of finance and support lowers their horizons in. London, 16 to 17 year olds get free buses, free trams, half price on the tube. Uh, that is not the case 
pretty much in the rest of the country. Uh, and I think you, you have to start with that because it, that also limits people's education horizon. So they're kind of often limited in their education choices. And then you have the situation where there's an institutional um, sort of driver with regard to the courses that they may find at their local uh, local college. I think um, you know, the courses are often uh, kind of reflect a strength within the organization or a, a kind of a, a, a convenience sometimes at worst within the organization to offer a certain type of technical course or, or, or vocational course. I once challenged a, a former education secretary on this saying that we needed more devolution so that we could link what happens in colleges. I think David Willits was saying this to the real economy so we could kind of excite people with the real opportunity of taking courses that lead to good jobs. And he said, well, we've got one better. It's, it's ultimate devolution where the individual decides. So it's the, the individual person chooses what course they do. But the, the reality is they don't. They're stuck with what their local college is offering often. Uh, and, and that may not be, enable them to follow their dreams. So people are leveled down before they even, <laughs> before they kind of minute they've left secondary school and they've, they've, they're leveled down at that point in their life. And that's the reality for a lot of young people in, in places like uh, Greater Manchester. So what, what do we do about it? And here's where I challenge David. I mean, we haven't spent all of our money on glitzy buildings in the, in the city centre. When I came in as mayor, I wanted to change the offer to our young people, particularly on this, these issues. So I have brought in a free bus pass for all 16 to 18 year olds in Greater Manchester. Great expense, I might add. And I have to fund it in a number of creative ways, but we've done it. And we link it to opportunities. So we get our big football clubs, theatres, music venues to offer free tickets, free entry as well. So it's a, it's a kind of passport to the wonderful wealth of Greater Manchester. Uh, and the message is that they can go to the city centre and walk through the, the shiny doors of the new place at Manchester, at the, uh, the, the Screen uh, School of uh, Digital Arts at Manchester Metropolitan University that uh, David mentioned, or any other place. I keep saying to our young people when I tell them why we created what we call our pass, our free bus pass. I keep saying to the kids at Oldham or Rochdale, when you look at the city centre and you see the skyscrapers, this pass is saying you can go there and you can walk through the door of those places and you can have a, a career there. And that, if we're honest, is not the reality of life outside of London in most English, English cities. Uh, the kids see the city centre as somewhere different and somewhere not for them. And we're trying to break down that, that, that message in, in Greater Manchester. I want to point to something else that we've done as well, which is set up something called GMAX, the Greater Manchester Apprenticeships and Career Service. I, in my manifesto, said that this was a UCAS-style system for apprenticeships. And that's what I believe it is, a single portal where all work-related opportunity is, is, is on one site. And I think that is critical uh, to, to kind of raising the sights of our, of our young people and allowing business, actually, to drive the education system by putting on the system what they want uh, with regard to skills uh, and apprenticeships and then asking the sort of college system uh, to follow to follow suit so we're kind of working around national policy is what i what i would say and i'll kind of finally turn to this point um uh, charlotte to finish in terms of where i think we go from here i, I don't think the skill system is ready for the recovery the, the scale of the task of recovery that, that is required after after the pandemic. Um, it's not responsive enough. It is it is not um, industry driven. Um, it is fragmented. It is poor quality uh, in in places. The recent white paper had some things in it, but it had a it was very silent on the role of place. And I think when you come to leveling up, 
which is the theme of what we're discussing today, you have to have place at the heart of that and the reality of what is available in the strength of the economy locally, the, the realistic jobs that people might be able to do in that uh, economy. I keep saying to any government minister who I get the chance to speak to at the moment, you cannot level up top down. You have to start with places and the strengths of places, the strengths of communities, the strengths of the businesses in those places, and then build from those strengths upwards. So the previous prime minister in government encouraged us all to do a local industrial strategy. And we enthusiastically did one in Greater Manchester and we still stand by it. Um, building on our true strengths. We are now in a clear second place to London as the we are the fastest growing digital city in Europe, uh, Manchester. And we are in a clear second place to London having overtaken Cambridge uh, last year. We want to connect our young people to the real opportunities in, uh, in our, our fast growing digital sector through a local industrial strategy underpinned by a local skills strategy. So we build a talent pipeline from our 10 boroughs into these sectors that we are trying to, uh, to, to build or to pick up David's theme about green jobs. Absolutely. You know, the, there is a potential for huge job creation in the green economy coming out of this uh, pandemic. You know, we have a target in Greater Manchester of a zero carbon city region by 2038. If we're going to get there, we have to retrofit every building in the, in the city region all homes, all businesses, a massive undertaking, but one which would create thousands of quality jobs. And when else have we been in a position in the Northwest of England to say to the coming generation, you know what, if you train in these digital, sorry, these green construction skills, retrofitting or modern methods of construction, the chances are you will have a good job for most of your life, given the scale of this retrofitting challenge ahead of us. It's a really big prize. But our skill system is nowhere near ready, actually, to respond with the speed and the scale is needed to make retrofitting at, 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 um, at that level uh, possible. So it's a frustrating, you know, what you, yes, I think I know what we need to do to um, level, to, 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 to ensure that education becomes a driver of leveling up. But what I would just say, Charlotte, is we are some way from it uh, at the moment. And we are seeing initiatives designed top down like Kickstart, which David mentioned, which don't connect properly on the ground. And therefore, they don't have the impact uh, that they that they need to have. We level up bottom up. You start with people. You start with places. You build up from their from their strengths. I think we know what we need to do in Greater Manchester. Our current frustration is we're not being given the tools to, to get on and do it. Um, so I will I will leave it there. But I hope some of that is uh, is helpful. That's brilliant, Andy. I know I know you've got to go um, very shortly. But if if I may, um, if you were asking the Chancellor in his budget a month today what he could do to really ensure that skills don't fall through the cracks between people who want more place-based, locally driven linked to local industrial strategy on the one hand, and then the kind of top down, how you make the system kind of with all the T levels and whatnot that David was talking about. What would you ask of the Chancellor be to, to at least kind of make some progress given that, you know, furlough, it comes to an end in April? My ask would be um, devolve control of post 16, because 
can we ever, can any of us say, and I'm talking about the government that I was in as well, this isn't a party political point in any way, shape or form, the snobbery about technical education was as alive and well during the new Labour years as it's been during the coalition or any, any other years. Can we say at any point in this country's recent post-war history that we've done a good job of technical education? No, we cannot, because you cannot create a good technical education system from the national level and just drop it on all these different places because everywhere is different. Everywhere has different skills needs. And what I would say to the Chancellor is they need uh, a roadmap for full post-16 devolution of um, skills and technical education funding because the recovery will require us to put in place the, the numbers of places in colleges to, to feed the green, um, uh, the, the green agenda I was talking about, the digital growth that we have got. We have private companies in Greater Manchester doing sort of digital conversion courses. Some of them are massively successful where they're taking people in their 20s or 30s and kind of re-pivoting them towards the digital economy because the skills system just doesn't, just doesn't do it in any, in any shape or form. Um, so I will be asking for that, Charlotte. If I might just take the opportunity to say too, I didn't get round to speaking about digital inclusion. And I think you, you shouldn't let this conversation pass without seeing that now as an issue that's got to move from the fringes to the, to the heart of this education levelling up debate. You cannot have fairness and levelling up in education if today, as you, you, we have got today, we've got 20,000 young people not in school or college with no access, no online access. That, that can't be a sort of a nice to have anymore. That has got to be fundamental and guaranteed for every single um, young citizen in our city region. And the Chancellor needs to release the funding to, to make that happen immediately. Even when schools and colleges have reopened, there still should be 24-7 digital access for every young person in every part of the country, because without it, there is no way that they can fulfil their uh, uh, academic or um, technical potential. That's a great call to action to end on. Thanks so much for your contribution. David Willits, I see, I could see you thinking and, and <laughs> jumping to come in. Have you, in, in, a, in a minute, um, have you got any reflections on that before I, I turn um, to um, David and then Zoe for her reflections? Yeah, um, two points. I mean, first, the. There is a real trade-off here when we talk about local skills needs. And let me give, offer a caricature. You're a young person living in Derby and you've always really enjoyed swimming and you want to be a surfing instructor. And you're a young person living in Truro and you've always really been interested in the aerospace sector and you want to work in aero engines. Now, what do we do about those two people? And if you're the model is a person in Derby should go and do uh, surfing at Truro College and the person in Truro should go and do aero engineering at Derby College, you need radically to change the way you fund your vocational system. And here David's got a point, you have to make it look more like HE because at the moment the higher education is the route whereby you move out and skills is seen about local needs. There is an alternative narrative where you say you're living in Derby, your family are in Derby, you always want to go and stay in Derby. If you're doing skills, you should stay where you are. Now, and I think David Goodhart is ambivalent about this, but if you're going to have a mobility agenda, then of course you need to actually copy the HE model and have residential funding to go and do your surfing qualification at Truro College. But then, and it's the reason why David is puzzled why the government is slow on the introduction of this wider loan system, you will find that the loan write-offs are quite high. 
if you worry about the line, loan write-offs in higher education, they will be higher for these loans. Vince and I introduced these loans for uh, A-levels and various vocational courses. And sadly, there was low take-up and a very high taxpayer write-off rate. So there is no right answer. But at the moment, if we assume in the, in the current model, you move by going to higher education. And the second thing I would say to David, and Andy will know the figures, if you look at the higher education participation rate, it varies so much by area. There will be areas in the Northwest where they have a higher education participation rate of 20%, 25%, as against participation rates of 60 or 70% in the prosperous Southeast. Those places where participation is so low should lower, should level up with more access to higher education. And it's very dangerous if people those places take a message that somehow too many going. It's the affluent Southerners and the middle-class papers that love the message too many people go to university. They want their kids to go, but it'd be quite handy if the other kids don't. It's, it's dangerous if it entrenches what is still an unacceptable diversity in levels of university participation. Can I just say though, Charlotte, very quickly, I just need to respond very quickly to that. I think you're, example is a 10% is a or even a 5% example. The vast majority of people in Greater Manchester are not 16 yearning to travel all across the country. They're really not. You know, they, they want a choice in, in their sort of realistic travel, travel area. And I think you've got to, you can't design the system for the higher, it's almost like people who've been to higher education are now taking their kind of views to FE. I just think it's, a, it's not what people, you've got to design it for the 90% of kids who want a really good quality opportunity within 10, 15 miles of where they live. I think that's the, anyway. But if you have the localist model, that's fine. In which case university and higher education is going to be different and it remain, it'll remain a crucial gap between them. David, good time if I can bring you in and then I want to come to Zoe. Yeah, I mean, I, I sympathize with a lot of what Andy was saying. I mean, you know, clearly we've had this historic problem of being over-centralized and we need more power uh, to be devolved. I'm just not convinced that the skills uh, field is the right one at the moment to be doing that devolving. I mean, I think, you know, we should devolve more in, in transport, in social care, in, but we seem to be just about getting it right, I think. The, the kind of, as I was saying earlier, I think the, kind of, the national building blocks are sort of in place and the crucial relationship is not so much between who is holding the purse strings, whether it's whether it's you or somebody in London, um, and the purse strings have been loosened after all, on, uh, I mean, hugely loosened, I mean, notwithstanding the delay that David was just talking about on extending the, the loan guarantee. I mean, there is, there is in the white paper a, a guarantee of, of funding for anybody doing level three, which presumably would cover your complaint about the abolition of, uh, of the uh, education maintenance grant um, or rather the combination of those two things the, the, the loan guarantee and the um, you know the funding of all course all level three courses um, but so, so we're, we're just about sort of get the, the crucial relationship here is between employers and the providers of, of training whether it's HE, FE, uh, schools, uh, private providers that is the crucial relationship and I think perhaps you have a role to play in in making that relationship work and perhaps a role in labor market intelligence but I don't I don't think this is the right time for you to be taking over the the um, the adult training budget um, uh, um, uh, you know the, 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 the budget is finally being expanded FE is being invested in 
Um, and, and you, but you could set an example, you know, by we, we've got the adult education budget, and it's much more work related for being devolved than it ever was when it was the adult education budget at national level because it links to real jobs in our economy. It is, and that's it what is, devolution it is brings. A fraction, though. So you've got you've either, it's got to be all or nothing, surely. Devolve more funding, or 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 come up with a system that means. You, you know, nationally, you're you're bolstering uh, whatever uh, structures we've got in place. But I'm going to turn at this stage to Zoe because we've been doing a lot of thinking on the de devolution of skills. And um, Zoe, what are our thoughts on this? Brilliant. Thank you very much, and thank you for very much for bringing me in at this point. I think. Um, but I won't, I won't go over the, the very good arguments that um, kicked off this discussion, but just to say in terms of headlines, you know, CPP, we've done a lot of analysis on the skill system and particularly the vocational skill system. And of course, it's great to hear um, the, the keenness for a rebalancing of the FE and HE sector, which is something we'd like to see too. Um, you know, if we look at the skills and education um, issues we have in the country regionally, we know we have start regional divides. That's both at the end of you know, at the level of having no qualifications through to who's, which areas have the most highly qualified people. So for instance, 54% of people in London have, you know, the level four plus qualification and 32% in the Northeast. But we know also it's an intra-regional problem. And um, I don't want to pick on Greater Manchester again, but of course, you know, to, just to illustrate the point, we know the difference in educational attainment, you know, the difference between Trafford and Stockport within Greater Manchester is, is greater than between London and the rest of the Northwest. Um, and as Andy said, COVID's going to exacerbate these, these divides. Absolutely agree with you, Andy, about um, the digital divide just being such a massive thing at the moment and, and ongoing, and that needs to be absolutely addressed. And local authorities, where they can, uh, are kind of picking up the pieces. But actually, this links to a wider point that I wanted to bring in and very much relates to the debate that's going on now um, in the conversation, which is we have an education and skill system that is actually increasingly out of local hands. Um, so, um, you know, both on the FE white paper side last week and just picking up on what you were saying, David, you know, we've shifted away from skills advisory panels led by LEPS and Merrill Combined Authority to local skills improvement plans led by employers and colleges um, with only a kind of nod to, to mayors and mayoral combined authorities. So it'd be interesting to kind of put that in the mix and see how we think that should shake out. Um, and then one thing that hasn't been mentioned that I would like to is the academization of the school system too, which we know has turned into a very different thing, started off as a way put money into deprived schools and now it's been absolutely turbocharged and over 70% of secondary schools are now out of the hands of local authorities and run by academy trusts. So it'd be great to hear also um, the reflections of the panel on whether we, we think that's um, helpful or not. Thank you. I'll hand over at that point to add more controversy into the debate. Well, a little bit more controversy, if I may, from the great questions that we've been getting on the uh, Q&A. Chris Moore, hi Chris, uh, is asking about uh, Brexit and immigration changes and the fact that that will be creating high levels of shortages, at least in the short term. So I was wondering if we could weave that into our conversation. Some of the other issues being raised around investment in social infrastructure more broadly, how that comes together 
at a local level, as well as um, supporting entrepreneurial skills and um, wider um, links to innovation and uh, catapults in um, uh, in developing uh, local skills and industrial strategies from Shane at Metro Dynamics. So just a few more things to add into the mix, but do any of our panelists wants to pick, to pick up on it all or some of those? David, good heart. Yeah, I mean, I'm just picking up on what Zoe was saying about secondary schools and academies. I mean, I think it, it and, and I'm, uh, I'd be interested to know what the story is in, in Greater Manchester. I mean, I, you know, what one might call the kind of Govian reforms, which have both been of structure, but also of content. Um, you know, the, the, I think, very welcome kind of rigour that the Govian reforms have introduced, the, the stress on, on a knowledge-rich curriculum, um, and also the stress on 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 discipline and behaviour. Um, I mean, as, as someone wrote, I was I was reading a, a Greater Manchester um, report on skills, and somebody um, wrote about how skill is not just about uh, sort of technical know-how; it is also about attitude and behaviour. Um, and you know, a, a lot of the school reform, a lot of the Govian reforms have been very much associated with 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 a huge emphasis on behavior and discipline um and and i think one of one of the perhaps unfortunate things is that these reforms and they have been pretty successful have been have been overwhelmingly focused on the south and on london in particular i mean the, the london educational performance it, it's true it precedes the it precedes the many of these reforms but it has been turbocharged by these reforms and i'm not quite sure whether i mean i know there's there's a lot of resistance both kind of politically ideologically perhaps by teaching unions to to some of the things that we associate with the the govian reforms and i just wonder whether um you know where where manchester stands on on these things I think we've lost Andy because he did have to go, but um, we we might have other people on Perhaps. the call who are able to speak to. But it sounds like David wants to come in, yeah. and Hello, then I, I then I have to move to Philippa Always from the AOC. Yeah, I'm sorry, now I've got an unstable internet connection, so that's why I'm turning off the video a bit. Um, two comments. First of all, I I think a lot of what Michael did and the Greater School Autonomy made sense. I'd be interested to know whether David agrees with a. Uh, a measure of school performance that I remember arguing with Michael about when he introduced it, which is the percentage of your students going to Russell Group universities, which is an absolute driver of the kind of behaviour. I agree. I agree. That is the, 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 the one kind of cloud over it. And, <laughs> and, and the way they, they kind of downplayed creative disciplines, you know, kind of art and music and so on. I think those, those are the two big mistakes. But Otherwise, I mean, I like that. I like the rigor. I like the kind of raising the floor aspect of it. Yeah. Well, I think David and I should make a joint approach to DFE because I've been trying to save them for a long time. But I think this is a this is distorting behavior and has has uh, perverse effects. And um, I remember arguing with him, uh, pleading with him not to add it as a performance indicator. But of course, in the DFE model of a hierarchy, and again, to do with David and everything, but I think on this, they're part of the problem. On the hierarchy, HE is better than FE, and Russell Group is better than the rates of HE. So, and Oxbridge is better than the rest of the Russell Group. They have an absolutely clear sense of what constitutes a good education and a bad education. And I think it can do a lot of damage. Um, the other, I just wanted to pick up in from the Q&A one, uh, the point on the catapult, which I very much agree with. And there's a, quite a lively discussion going on. But in terms of how we actually promote technical education, 
not with HE as the enemy, often HE as a very effective provider of technical education, but certainly our research labs and our applied technology capabilities in catapults can and should do more to promote technical education. Uh, what we need to do is realize that HE as well as FE can deliver it, uh, but uh, there's definitely practical things we can do there to, to train more technicians. Now, thank you um, both. Um, Philippa from the AOC. Thank you, Charlotte. Yeah, I'm from the AOC, but I've also been working on the Independent Commission on the College of the Future. Um, so we, we've touched a lot already on uh, the power of colleges in the north, but also across the country in levelling up, and they've been doing so much work for so long. Um, the Skills for Job white paper is definitely a welcome focus from the government, but there's clearly a long way to go in terms of meeting the ambitions. So my question for the panel is, sort of what, the what should the priorities be for empowering colleges to do more? Um, and specifically in terms of how they work collaboratively with the wider education system and any accountabilities and funding mechanisms that are needed there. Great, thank you. What does the future of the college look like uh, within the new reformed FE system? Um, have we got Elena Macrini from Centre for Cities as well? Oh yes, Elena, do you want to ask your question before we go back to the panel? Hi, hi, Charlotte. Yes, uh, thanks. Thanks, both David, for your comments. Um, I wanted to uh, build on the comments that David Willett has made about mobility and obviously the two quite extreme examples about Truro and Derby. Um, obviously, skills is a really important uh, part of the question, uh, but in terms of leveling up is only half the answer. Um, on the other hand, uh, you also need to create a job and opportunities in different places because uh, um, if, if, if we um, go beyond this extreme example, obviously you can't create surfing activities in Derby, uh, but there are job opportunities that you can create in different places. What kind of policies beyond, of sk beyond skills, uh, what kind of actions should we take uh, to uh, level up uh, other parts of the country and what should be the role of local government and local leaders in that? Great question from you, Elena. Um, can we start with that wider context, Zoe, and you could maybe pick up on some of the things that we're hearing from our Inclusive Growth Network? Are you okay? Yeah, hi. Yeah, thanks a lot um, for your questions. I think absolutely what we're, what we're hearing from our Inclusive Growth Network is definitely that they would like uh, further local control of, of the skill system. And I think the FE white paper, I'm glad that's been brought up again, confuses a bit the accountability of whether this is an employer's and college's agenda and then what role for the mayoral combined authorities. Obviously we've lost Andy now, but if, you know, we've kind of got now two systems running in parallel and I don't think the white paper answered that. And that's really important for accountability. Um, secondly, just in terms of work that CPP have done, we've you know looked before at how you can better match the skills of those coming out of local FE colleges with the local employment opportunities. Um, and as ever, you know, that's always a work in progress. And sometimes actually it's on the businesses to better explain what the skills they need are in the next coming years so that the FE colleges can respond to that and train up people in the, in the right way. So I think it's, it's not just on the colleges to kind of respond to the employers, but also for the employers to, to tell their local FE institutions what the skills pipeline is they need. 
Thanks, Zoe. Either of the two Davids wants to come up on either Elena's question or, or Philippa's. I mean, just I might kind of a quick advertisement for um, the debate we've been having at Policy Exchange. Um, we've, we've had uh, Edward Peck of Nottingham Trenton, Alan Francis of Oldham College, who've been debating uh, essentially kind of who should who is best placed to deliver the, the, the kind of missing middle skills levels four five particularly um and um i mean i think the kind of um obviously they're both representing the interest of their sectors to some extent but uh, but um i think they're both trying to look beyond that and 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 essentially it's a kind of horses for courses i mean this shouldn't be um either one or the other and it, it'll it'll depend on who is best placed to do so in different parts of the country um, but um, I mean, ju ju just one slight bee in my bonnet on a, on a re related thing. And we, we talked about social care. Social care is clearly um, a huge area of future employment um, at all levels of skill. I mean, you know, the, if one imagines the sort of job of the future, one of the, one of the most, um, one of the areas of greatest growth will be in something like a, a dementia nurse. Now, a dementia nurse will require a huge amount of, of, of knowledge about the condition, uh, as well as the, um, the, the kind of uh, the empathy of, of a traditional nursing job, caring job. Um, it'll be, a, you know, it'll be very much a kind of head and heart uh, occupation. Um, and, um, and, you know, but we already, we already have a huge crisis of recruitment, um, as David Willits was saying earlier. Um, and, and one of the things that I think we should be doing a lot more of is encouraging young men to consider occupations in the public care sector, which is overwhelmingly female. We spend a lot of time trying to encourage women to get jobs in construction and engineering with rather limited success, it has to be said. Um, I think we should be doing a great deal more, you know, perhaps, perhaps Marcus Rashford could be called in uh, on this one too. And so, you know, if you can't be a footballer, be a social care nurse. Um, um, well, I think that goes back to um, Chris Moore's um, first question around Brexit because we rely so heavily on bringing agency workers um, in from overseas to fill our NHS vacancies and it's not it isn't uh, I mean I think nursing I mean East people coming in from the EU I think about seven percent of NHS nurses or maybe it's a little bit higher in social care but I mean, you know, they're not, they're not all going home. Some of them are, um, but yeah, we, we've got to pay those jobs better. We've got to respect them more as I think we are doing. I mean, one of the effects of the pandemic, we've got proper career structures and so on because we have such a fragmented social care sector. It's often difficult to sort of to carry your experience from one place to another. David Willits, any comments on any yeah, of those uh, questions? Um, first of all, employers. And uh, again, I used to have such lively conversations with Michael Gove about this. David's already talked about Michael. Another feature of Michael's time at the DFE was deep hostility to employer engagement in education. Uh, and let's be clear, because he had some quite strong arguments on this. First of all, he thought all the employer representative bodies had fallen victim to progressive fans. So he didn't think that their views on education had much weight. Secondly, there's quite a strong view amongst a range of economists that, of course, employers have a very clear sense of what their skill shortage is now. 
it doesn't follow that that is absolutely should be the focus of how you train and skill up young people for the future and we've got painful experiences of focusing on keep teaching kids in the 1970s some transient computer coding program that you're lucky if it remains relevant for a year um, where are the employers that are going to train people for the green jobs that don't yet exist but which we believe may well exist in the future and indeed one of the arguments for the role of catapults someone was asking about earlier was precisely that the catapults are looking ahead into places where employers aren't currently to be found uh, and i think where one of the things that david said that i disagree with is t levels are not doing well and one of the reasons why t levels are not doing well is they rest on an assumption about levels of employer commitment and hours of employer engagement that can be delivered as part of t levels which is simply not happening and which are not available in large parts of the country which is why the dfe is now looking to try to close down all the existing recognized vocational alternatives in order to force people into t levels which i very much hope david will join me in opposing so employer engagement is a much more tricky policy both in principle and in practice than if we just sit around saying let's have more employer involvement um, and my second comment is just briefly the the two university model and nottingham nottingham is a fascinating and there are others around the country manchester is another so you've got university of nottingham and nottingham trent you've got sheffield hallam and university of sheffield you've got manchester met and university of manchester um, contrary to what David says, these, the economic appraisal, the value of universities is that they do boost growth and boost employment. And the two university model with distinct missions is a particularly effective one in a city. There's one question in the Q&A thread about polytechnics. Uh, the answer is polytechnics survive. They often still have those distinct missions. They've got university titles, same as they would have in Germany or in the US. Uh, and if they haven't succumbed to mission drift, the view that the only way of being a good university is a Russell University, then actually having two universities with distinct missions in the city is a really good combination. And any city that's only got one would be very advised to try to create a second. And the Nottingham, Nottingham Trent, I very much hope, again, David would join me in saying Nottingham Trent should have a role in delivering vocational training. And if we try to stop universities like Nottingham Trent doing that, that is the final betrayal of the polytechnic mission. What about places that don't have a higher education institution at all, David? Places like Blackpool, say? Well, of course, the gossip. Now, there are different stories about Black Blackpool is a very interesting case. Blackpool, by all accounts, is an early case study in Goodhartism. In other words, Blackpool was being targeted to have a university in the 60s and 70s. The Tory controlled council at the time didn't like the idea of having a university, so it went to Lancaster instead. That's the uh, that's supposed to be the history of Blackpool's problem. But yeah, I think the, co the cold spot problem of places uh, that are quite big and don't have a university, they sh we should have more universities. And absolutely, if I were uh, involved in a town or city that didn't have one, I would very much wish to have a university, not as the only destination for my local people, but undoubtedly as a way of, of uh, boosting my economic performance and boosting the performance of, uh, of local people. And Blackpool's strategic decision not to have a university was a mistake. Mm. David. Uh, I think we um, disagree on this slightly less than David imagines. I mean, obviously, I'm aware of the fact that many um, HE institutions do vocational courses. Um, 
um, as indeed do FE colleges. I mean, sorry, I mean, do, do FE colleges do, do um, HE as well. Um, but the, the, the problem with the, the kind of, the overemphasis on kind of on HE is that um, it, it's, it's residential uh, and, and it's, it's academic. It's, and it's usually, you know, it's so much of it is focused on, you know, 18, 19 year olds full time. We've seen an absolute catastrophic fall in the number of adults um, late entrance into HE as a result of the, uh, the, uh, the logic of the funding system. I think it fell by 50 percent between 2010 and 2019. We just need much more flexibility. And, uh, you know, as I was saying, with the delivery of level four or five, in some areas, this will be the FE colleges. In other areas, it'll be the the new university that will be delivering them. You know, there's no reason to be dogmatic about it. Um, I think, I think in the longer run, I think um, HE should shrink somewhat, um, and we should see the expansion of a kind of uh, of, a, of all sorts of kind of hybrid institutions um, and and in, and rebuilding the FE college. Um, in and I mean the idea, David, that um, you know you used to be a Hayekian. Um, you're, still am. Still am. Um, well, you're kind of, you know, when it comes to skills, you seem to believe in the Soviet computer. No. Um, you know, no. <laughs> um, no. I believe in people's choice. I believe in young people choosing. Um, what's fantastic about these events is that I mentioned Blackpool and Frank yeah. Norris has popped up and said he's the independent chair of Blackpool Education Improvement Board. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Frank, but I think it does speak to this, um, the question of connectivity, about how people define and can think about their place and how far they're willing to travel, not just for work, but for learning. Um, and I think therefore, potentially, um, whilst I, I, I recognise the risk of your leave to achieve idea, David, there is something I think we need to think about in terms of whether that might be a metric of success and whether we um, whether we can uh, have a more nuanced view of that. Um, but before we maybe um, start to, to think about wrapping up, I wanted to come back to Zoe. There have been a couple of questions in the Q&A and on Twitter about the extent to which a devolved skill system actually just you know, heightens local bureaucracy rather than doing any of this stuff any more effectively. So have you got any thoughts on that? Well, I think it comes down to um, local accountability and making people accountable for it locally. At the moment, we have this hybrid system where we're not quite sure whether we have a national skill system or a local system. And I think um, kind of deciding which one it is would be a, a helpful first step. But I do think that, you know, given that we've got these within region inequalities as much as between region inequalities in education outcomes, both at the lower end and the higher end, you know, making mayors accountable within we thought their within region inequality would be a good start but of course they need the levers um, to do that so I'm I'm quite supportive of Andy's call for the the, the 16 plus system um, but of course you know at, in, at central government level we're kind of getting mixed messages too so we had you know the sort of idea of industrial strategy grand challenges and it all coming from the centre and then we went to local industrial strategies and I think kind of local areas are sort of waiting to see what comes next um, so that they can make a move if needs be. Yeah, I mean, it is tricky, this. And again, I mean, I'm just aware of 
having been involved in this area of policy for a long time, the trade-offs. So again, I can remember, we realized um, early on in the coalition, if we did half of all the construction projects that George Osborne was so keen on as chancellor, we were going to be building a lot of tunnels. So um, there was a deliberate decision to create a national tunneling academy. We didn't say this is all a devolved matter for local areas. We said there is a certain sort of engineering which the UK is undersupplied in, which we're going to need more of. And the best way to do it is to create a national centre of excellence. Now, we create, ended up creating a network of these national colleges. To be honest, several of them have not survived now. And so I'm not claiming there's one perfect solution. But if you are sitting in government and agreeing a lot of infrastructure plans and you can see that it's going to involve a lot of tunnelling, what are you supposed to do in those circumstances? What is the uh, alternative suggestions gratefully received? I mean, I would argue, wouldn't you then go over to your local areas and say, put your hand up if you've got the, the colleges and the infrastructure who can move fast to, to give us tunnelers and, and, you know, and hand it over to them as opposed to then saying from the center, we're gonna have one academy that you know, sits in one place or another. But don't the, I mean, don't the big contracting, I mean, tunnelling companies, you know, I mean, they have pipelines of, of, of skilled <laughs> they people. themselves. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, there, are, there are facilities. And indeed, uh, near my former constituency down in Portsmouth, uh, HMS Sultan, there is a, a rail track facility that does, does runs residential uh, rail track apprenticeships. Uh, I believe the construction industry has a residential program out in East Anglia. So you end up with a network of some capabilities, especially the residential ones that tend to be national. So I, I'm not being a purist. I'm not even saying there's a right answer. I'm just saying that the 50, the reason why Zoe, this looks unresolved because it's not been resolved in 50 years because there are rival arguments for different types of provision. But, but, but also, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit, sorry, slightly changing the subject. I'm slightly surprised to how dismissive you are about T-levels, given that they barely started. Um, I mean, and, and you know, actually, if you look at what, and, and this is an example of where kind of, you know, the national structure is kind of working potentially it's still it's but if you look at the skill shortages in manchester they are in in digital they're in construction they're in health and social care and they're in advanced manufacturing um and these are not i mean some of these will be graduate jobs many of them will be level four or five jobs uh, or even level three jobs um and um, I, I, mean, I, I was talking to Alan Francis the other day at Oldham College. They are starting to deliver, indeed they have already been delivering T-levels, and they are doing them in construction, in digital, in, in, in social care. Um, um, you know, th this, is, this is the system kind of beginning to work. Um, yeah. well, so that is fine. I, I, I want to see T-levels succeed. I think in reality the growth is rather more modest than hope because of this employer engagement requirement. My worry from the latest document from the government, and again, I hope David, in the spirit of being Hayekin, would agree with me on this, is if the government tries artificially to drive people into T-levels by closing down other options. So in other words, T-levels have to be... Um, they can't be given the unfair advantage of making other types of skills provision, including long established skills provision, somehow no longer funded. And that's maybe I'm being maybe I'm being uh, too uh, 
pessimistic and maybe I'm misreading the documents that came out the other week, but I read them as preparing for, we will make tea levels succeed by forcing all the other alternatives out of action. But maybe David's gonna tell me I'm wrong and I hope I am wrong. So um, a final call for any last questions. I think we've broadly covered those in the Q&A, although do shout if you feel we haven't sufficiently addressed yours. Um, and so we will um, be slowly starting to come to final remarks. So if I could come to you first, will I give people a chance to make any more questions for uh, the two Davids on the Q&A? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I think, you know, we're here to, we're here to talk about education leveling up and skills and absolutely has a massive role. And actually, I think in terms of the kind of national debate and how government is framing leveling up at the moment, I think it's been um, quite a kind of a, an issue that hasn't been sort of put fully into the leveling up mix. And I think it absolutely should be as this as this conversation has shown. Um, and it's absolutely critical to both those between region and within region um, inequalities. So um, I absolutely support the FEHE parity and there's a lot we can do that goes beyond what the FE white paper said to make sure that happens, including living allowances and many more things that CPP have recommended along the way um, and, and to, 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 help, to help build that parity. So um, all in all, I hope, I hope we've convinced the audience that um, education does have a, a massive role to play in this. Definitely. Thank you, Zoe. And to somebody who just asked about secondary education, we are going to be doing a school's uh, specific debate or two later in the year. So do watch out for that. Um, David Willits, if I can come to you next for your final thoughts. Well, thanks, Charlotte. And look, looking through the Q&A, it is fantastic to see the, the participation in this webinar and people who really are involved in delivering skills in their areas in Oldham, in Blackpool, uh, and elsewhere and as you say that's that's a source of real expertise um i mean i uh, uh, i mean i think it is i think we're all agreed on the importance of technical education um i'm trying to protect it from what i see as threats to the range of delivery and i think there's a very good point in the q a of someone who saying that the academic technical education distinction can be overdone one of my fears is that we treat them as totally uh, separate when in reality, the interaction of the conceptual and the physical, the scientific and the technological um, is often the most stimulating point. Uh, it actually improves practice and improves your thinking. And I think it would be a pity if we ever tried to construct education routes where we divided those up and certainly tried early on at 11 or 14 or 16 or 18 to set people into one or the other. I think they do, uh, they can often reinforce each other. I want to see diversity in qualifications and diversity in provision. And then I very much hope we can tackle our historic weaknesses in technical education. Fantastic, thank you. And finally, David Guitar. No, well, it, it, it's, you know, the kind of the head hand heart distinction is obviously a, an artificial one, it, it, but, um, you know, lots, as I was just saying about the dimension, there's lots of, lots of jobs obviously require a combination of, um, of a kind of academic training and, and other kinds of, of human skills. And actually, just picking up on what David was saying, I think one of the, one of the reasons why I think 
the 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 kind of cognitive um, sort of gulf, if you like, um, or the the um, um, yeah, I mean the the, the value divide, um, you know, using my language, the kind of anywhere somewhere divide is starker in this country is partly because of the the you know almost the you know the kind of intellectual almost philosophical divide that um uh, you know that between the kind of academic stream um you know instead of <clears throat> instead of the 11 plus we now have essentially at you know at 16 you're either into the academic stream and into university or your your options are far less good than they should be far less good than many um many continental european countries and one of the things that's reinforced that i think is the decline of manufacturing because as somebody pointed this out to me the other day that manufacturing requires a kind of mutual respect between more kind of abstract academic knowledge uh and sort of the and practical intelligence of the you know of the sort of technician type practical intelligence and you know as manufacturing has has shrunk um you know for to, to whatever it is sort of 10 11 percent or even less of gdp that kind of meeting that that mutual respect has has gone which is a shame um because we certainly we certainly need it um and i did and i but i do think you know having over expanded he um i think we have got the system out of kilter but apart from anything else we're creating uh, a, a whole class of of people with disappointed expectations, thirty percent of graduates are not in graduate employment. You know, five to ten years after graduating, uh, the graduate income premium for all those, except for people in the elite universities, is is um, is, is collapsing. So we do, you know, we we've got to rethink. And I think we have, you know, we we are getting it. Um, we are we got the building blocks now for for a better system um, of you know non-HE post-school education. Um, we are, you know, let's give let's give T levels a chance. Let's give the investment in the the FE network a chance. I mean, you know, we're just in the foothills of this, so let's not dismiss it before it's had a, a chance to prove itself. Wonderful. Thanks so much on your points on the uh, diminishing returns to HE. Um, David Willits's uh, points notwithstanding, I think you must have been reading some of uh, CPP's research on this. So I encourage you to go to our website um, and uh, also sign up for our future events. Next month, we'll have an in-conversation with Lord Hasseltine about the future of devolution, a subject that we've also talked extensively about today. Um, other themes coming down the track, um, green recovery, which I hope will be of interest. We are hoping to do an event um, on building back better, a UK-US comparison in light of the new presidency, and then some, some other work new to CPP, including on childcare. So stay tuned, sign up for our events, and we look forward to seeing you very soon. Um, and nothing more for me except to say thank you so much to our fantastic speakers thank you to Andy Brenham who we know had to go off to do a press conference but stayed longer with, a, with us than um, his minders may have uh, advised but it was great to have him and a fantastic discussion from all of our panelists thank you and thank you for joining us. <laughs>